Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shiam, currently a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden and also co-hosts this podcast. I can't believe that pretty soon you're going to have to say I'm a junior. It's hard to believe how time has flown by. Yeah. I'm Jill Weinbanks, his co-host and also the author of The Watergate Girl, about my experience in the Watergate trial as well as being an MSNBC legal analyst and co-host of Hashtag Sisters-in-Law podcast. I'm also the wearer of Hashtag Jill's Pins, and today's pin is very relevant to our episode with Sevilla Tamarkin about reproductive health care. And it is a uterus that was given to me by a very well-known OBGYN doctor who frequently appears on television, and has her own podcast. Um, So thank you very much to Dr. Stryker for my pin today. If the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade as expected based on a leaked Dobbs opinion, it will be the end of safe and accessible reproductive rights. Once Roe is overturned, it will be the poorest, most vulnerable, and marginalized who will face the costs and burdens of that loss. It's a reality that young people certainly thought would never happen in our lifetimes, given that we grew up with reproductive rights. And it's a reality that frightens Jill's generation because they grew up up during a time when reproductive rights were not guaranteed. Today, we are going to explore just how we got here, what the consequences of the decision are, and whether they they were foreseeable, how to respond to the Dobbs decision politically and legally, and what other rights are at stake if Dobbs as drafted becomes the law. And we are joined by a terrific guest today, Sivia Tamarkin, someone who I have the privilege of calling a very dear friend. She is the perfect person to talk to about this. She is an award-winning investigative journalist, documentary filmmaker, and a former television news executive at CNN. She has produced independent films and cable documentaries, as well as developed programming content and strategies for cable, internet, and digital global platforms. She was a CNN executive and executive producer of CNN's Emmy-winning news magazine show, CNN and Time. Her investigative reporting led to one of the first exculpatory DNA exonerations in America, as well as the exoneration of a death row inmate. Sivia was also director executive producer and writer of the film Birthright, A War Story, which tells the story of women who have become collateral damage in the aggressive campaign to take away the reproductive health care that we have all come to take for granted. It threatens when and how women will bear children, and the documentary explores the accelerating gains of the crusade to control pregnancy and the fallout that is creating a public health risk. She will be a terrific guest, and I encourage everyone to watch her film, which we will put uh, a link in our show notes. Thank you very much for being with us today, Sivia. Well, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk about this topic. 
Same here. So my generation grew up without ever thinking about abortion. We took it for granted as the Dobbs decision um, or the leaked opinion spells out, there's a very good chance that abortion will not exist for my peers. So I'm wondering if we can start off by having you help us understand what it was like when Roe wasn't the law of the land. When Roe was not the law of the land, more than a million women still accessed abortion illegally, back alley, and the numbers of women that died were astronomical. The uh, hospital wards were filled with women who were septic and dying of abortion. And finally, later on, a few states in the 60s, California, later New York, legalized abortion. And so what you had was a total desert and wasteland across the country, except for the two states on the East Coast. And it was something that even the American Medical Association pushed to legalize because of the high fatality rate. Women were using instruments, the old image, of course, of the coat hanger. Women were using uh, self-made devices, rubber tubes, etc. They were taking herbal medications. They were taking Clorox. They were taking all kinds of, uh, you know, poisonous materials in an attempt to terminate. It's hard to imagine what will happen once Roe is overturned or if that happens. But I'm wondering, once Roe was decided, how much did that change the landscape of reproductive rights? Well, it totally changed that. And don't forget that in 1964, I mean, Roe was 72, but prior, 73, but prior to Roe, Griswold was passed and that legalized contraception. Imagine in the 50s when there was no contraception and no legalized abortion. So, you know, it was in terms of, you know, women's mortality, the rates were so astronomical. But what we're going to see now, I mean, certainly there's little doubt that Roe will be overturned or at least decimated to such an extent that it is basically non-existent. The reality is that Roe is non-existent now for most of the women in this country. There are so many bans in states statewide and there is limited access. There are no providers in 90% of the counties in this country. Wow. So basically, and there's no affordability, has not been since 76 with the Hyde Amendment, which precluded fund, federal funding through insurance. Consequently, when the Affordable Care Act went into effect and state insurance companies took over, with various access programs, many of them precluded coverage for abortion as well. We also have people who may be state employees, even university professors in their families, who cannot get coverage through their state policy. And certainly anyone in the military or anybody working for a federal agency, whether it's you know a, a ranger in a state park, um, and, and his or her family. They cannot get medical coverage. So therefore, if you don't have access 
and you don't have affordability. You don't have any opportunity for abortion. So you mentioned that Roe is virtually non-existent for many parts of the country. How much did Roe solve the challenges to reproductive rights? Well, Roe eliminated the fatalities, Mm -hmm. but it did not, once the Hyde Amendment went into effect, then it certainly encumbered and indeed limited access for low-income women and particularly for women of color. And that's what we're finding now all over again. When Roe is overturned or at least left in a fragment, because when the Supreme Court will send the issue of abortion back to state legislatures, this is going to widely impact women who are poor, women of color. I mean, in states like Texas, for example, you know, um, the population is like almost 60% of the population is color, people of color. But the number of people seeking abortions of that population are 74%. So you can imagine what this is doing. In Mississippi, the statistics are similar. And um, we're already seeing the effects. Now, I do not think, I, I, I really firmly believe that everybody has to understand we are not going back to the days of women dying from back alley abortions because we have medication abortions. Problem is that more than half the states have either banned that or restricted it so that the medication must be dispensed by physicians. So if abortion is illegal and providers are going to be criminally penalized, then you won't have access. If you do not have the medication accessible, you can try getting it. There are outlets overseas. There are outlets online. So the replacement for the symbolic image of a coat hanger is going to become jail bars because once people realize or hear that someone has bought medication to terminate a pregnancy online, received it through the mail, then they can be prosecuted in the various states. What a horrible image you are creating. Um, I want to go back to one of the things that Victor asked you about, which was the pre-Roe environment, because I just learned about something, which I don't know if you've heard of, the Janes who were from Chicago. Oh, sure. And I thought that was a fascinating development of how this group of women got together to try to provide safe Um, abortions. And there was actually a doctor who helped them in emergencies when something more complicated happened. He helped them out. And it happened to be someone who uh, was a, a mentor to the doctor I was talking to and learning about this. So do you think those kinds of groups will reemerge as a way to help women in need? They already are. Is that right? Oh, they're, they've been going on ever since wow. the restrictions took effect starting in 2011 and so on. 
There is, um, on the East Coast, there's the Bridget Network, mm -hmm. and um, they have certainly helped transport women. I mean, women who not just wanted abortions because they did not want pregnancies, but women who could not carry to term without jeopardy. For example, one of the, the uh, women they transported was from Maine, who was diagnosed with breast cancer while she was pregnant. And she could not receive chemotherapy or radiation as long as she was carrying a fetus. So they transported her later in the pregnancy to Maryland, where they did do late-term abortions. But the Bridget Network, um, I was involved with them a couple of years ago as they were a startup, helping them find um, some, some connections. And now there are a number of networks springing up. In fact, one of the most positive things to come out of this nightmare is that New York State in the legislature now has a bill, the Geraldine Santoro bill, named after a woman who, um, who terminated her own pregnancy in a motel room in the early, in the 60s and uh, late 60s. And the police photo of her death her body, the crime photo, her body um, on her knees, hunched over, lying in pools of blood, was published nationwide. And Ms. Magazine, other places, published it. So this bill and her death was actually very catalytic in getting, galvanizing the movement to legalize abortion. New York State, and she, she lived in New York, New York State has now proposed in their legislature the Geraldine Santoro uh, Act, which would not only, I mean, it's abortion is legal in New York, but it goes further. It would create a sanctuary state. It would receive uh, this sanctuary network in New York would receive initial funding of $15 million dollars a lot of matching grants that would be administered by state officials. And it would network with other states where abortion is legal so that they can create, the goal is to create, in fact, I just was kind of, this is, this is a scoop for you guys because I was just contacted about this a few days ago. Um, the goal is to create a nationwide sanctuary network. And one of the provisions of this bill is that anyone who impedes travel to access abortion can be charged civilly. So it's the reverse of the Texas law. Someone who would interfere with it could be charged civilly. Now the bill hasn't passed, but it is supported widely. There were a hundred people from the theatrical and, and film community who signed it, including Aaron Sorkin and Amy Schumer, of course, Gloria Steinem. Um, etc. And now, in order to get a more diverse population of signatures, um, it is going online as a petition, possibly wow. move on. Well, I love getting that scoop. I, I wonder about a couple of things. One, states are trying to do extraterritorial coverage. So they're saying that you cannot leave the state to take a pill. You can't get the pill right. mailed into the state, which seems to me an interference in interstate commerce. 
Um, so I'm wondering whether, although I love using the Texas law against the very premise of the Texas law to stop those impeding the use of uh, medical and reproductive health care, but I wonder whether those extraterritorial laws will actually present a problem so that women can't leave the state and then return because they would be criminally charged upon return for having done that. Is that something that has been looked at? I don't know that they have looked at that in terms of, you know, the interstate or intrastate. But um, the point is that there are efforts afoot to create networks. The Jane Network was so well-known. Subsequently, there have been films made about it. You know, there's documentaries right. about it. But it also relied on a, a terrific network, which I am involved setting up as well, um, a clergy network. It was, you know, clergy counseling services because so many people in clerical people have immunity when it comes to confidentiality. And so Catholics for Choice was very involved with that as well. And therefore, they were part of the referral service because they could not be charged. It was clergy privilege communication. And they could refer people to providers. They could refer them for, you know, transportation uh, within this underground network. So, so there's a lot of communication about setting up those alternative networks. Um, certainly this example in New York, there are other networks around. The National Abortion Fund uh, helps people access. There are online, there's an organization called If, When, How, and they provide information. Most importantly, there is an online a hub called Plan C. And Plan C will tell people how to access medication. So, Sylvia, um, I think people knowing how to access healthcare is important. Is that something that's on your website for your film, or is there somewhere that we can post on our show notes that would be a resource guide to people for? legal help or for healthcare help? Well, at this point, I don't have it on the website, but you can look up Plan C. Plan C. Okay. There's a, there's a link. Excellent. Okay. Um, let's, let's turn to your movie because um, in the 50 years since Roe was decided, it's nearly 50 years now, uh, six months away, um, I, I thought I couldn't be shocked by anything, but watching your movie... I was shocked by a number of things that I saw. Uh, I was shocked when I saw how municipalities and states and cities began to restrict access through their own measures, um, but not just abortion, but also to contraceptives, sterilizations, um, particularly in those where there wasn't adequate resources for them otherwise. I'm just wondering if you can talk about some of those uh, issues that are covered in your film? Well, the key thing I set out to do was to show the collateral damage from the war on reproductive health. Everybody knew there were opponents to abortion. And all they, for the most part, people believed that stopped abortion. That was the mm -hmm. goal. 
what nobody recognizes, even today, very few people, you see the people railing now in the wake of the leaked decision, and they're still carrying the old placards, my body, my choice, and don't restrict my choice, and so on. Choice is a misnomer. As I said before, it's, we have to change the vernacular. We have to reframe the messaging. Because if you don't have access, you don't have affordability, you have no options. Without options, there are no choices. And that was something that second wave feminist movement really did not consider when pushing that, that trope. They did not recognize how they were excluding huge swath of the community. So when we go back to the film, my goal was to show that these bans on abortion affect people with much wanted pregnancies, as well as those who want to terminate a pregnancy. It affects people whose pregnancies go bad, who are no, the pregnancy is no longer vi uh, you know, viable, except the fetus has not died. Therefore, as we show in the film, we have a case of a woman who became, was becoming septic she was in Nebraska, but Nebraska had one of the first outright abortion laws. And her doctors were advised by their malpractice carriers not to assist her in evacuating this dying fetus because she was beyond 22 weeks. As a result, she was becoming very ill. Fortunately, her body finally, as she was on, on you know, machine support in the hospital. Finally, her body evacuated. This fetus gasped and died. But she, as, as her husband says in the film, he almost lost the love of his life. So those are examples. There are women who have gone to emergency rooms at Catholic health facilities, Catholic health care, or even regional hospitals in states that are very hospital to abortion municipalities, county hospitals, and they have been hemorrhaging, they have been septic, they have been at risk of dying, and yet they would not get the assistance because there was a heartbeat. So stories of miscarriage mismanagement as a result of anti-abortion mentalities. And what we refer to often as the fetus first mentality have cost lives. And we have that, you do see a correlation between states with the most restrictions and the states that have the highest maternal mortality rate, Mississippi, Texas. So um, that was what we set out to do in the film is to show the maternal mortality risk from the abortion bans to also show the state intervention in not just whether or not you give birth, but how you give birth. There's a case there about a forced cesarean section, which is part of the fetus first mentality. There have been cases all around the country where women fled jurisdictions where hospitals on the advice of an OBGYN who felt the fetus was too large for a normal birth to go through the birth canal, ordered C-sections. And these women fled the jurisdiction, gave birth naturally, by the way, and then risked the consequences when they returned home. 
So we wanted to show that element of it, the women who had been enforced court-ordered bed rest, etc. But we also wanted to show what is now becoming prevailing, and we saw this happen with the woman in Texas, the criminalization of pregnancy. Government intrusion into every aspect of prenatal conduct and government intervention by way of using, misusing child endangerment laws, first of all, to establish the personhood of the fetus, and second of all, to criminalize any kind of prenatal conduct. It's very frightening. Um, your film, you mentioned collateral damage, but also unforeseen consequences are part of what you look at in the film, which, of course, obviously we recommend and are putting in our show notes so that people can watch the film. Um, there were many things that surprised me about medical schools not training students to do abortions, even to save the life of the mother, so that you could come to a hospital and there would be no one who knows how to actually exactly. help you. Um, doctors not helping during a miscarriage, something you've just mentioned, where a, a woman is profusely bleeding, but because it might look like it's part of an abortion, they're afraid to, to help. Um, ectopic pregnancies, which can and often do cause death to the mother and is not a viable pregnancy. Uh, you mentioned forced bed rest, criminalization. Um, and all of this seems to be looking at establishing a superior right of a fetus over the life of the mother. And that, that seems very frightening to me. Is there anything you can say about that? Well, what's interesting to look at is where is the line of demarcation? All of the states have an exception, though they don't have it for rape or incest. They do have an exception for when the life of the mother is in danger. Where's the line that determines that? Must the mother be on life supports at that stage when they say the life, her life is at risk? Or can it be done preventatively before the sepsis spreads throughout her body? or before her, her blood loss is so great that her body goes into shock. No one defines that line. In the states where there are bans, doctors are required sometimes to seek um, permission from medical officials in the state, state health people. Yeah. How do you wait? How long can you wait for a process to take effect? Or they have to justify it afterwards. The only caveat that I would have is the one type of pregnancy that I do think would be an automatic exemption, perhaps is ectopic, because there's no way that a fetus can grow in a fallopian tube without that tube hemorrhaging. So that is a known risk of harm. I mean, it, it, the fetus would not survive, the mother would not survive. So that may not, that may be the one exception. Unfortunately, but it's not clear in the laws. I mean, I, it's not I, I mean, it's, it's obvious that it's a death sentence for both the fetus and the mother, but it isn't obvious to me that under the extreme language of Dobbs and laws that have been passed 
either trigger laws that will go into effect or those that will pass as a result of it, it's not clear that those are going to make clear to a doctor it's safe for you to do this. The other thing is that doctors are becoming so frightened because of the criminal penalties against them that they may be very hesitant to make a decision or to perform the procedure. I truly believe most will, but nevertheless, they don't know what they're up against because that hasn't been defined. The doctor in Nebraska that we have in the film um, said he was advised by the Nebraska Medical Association and by his malpractice carrier not to terminate early. And and you also have... um, as part of the National Council of Jewish Women, of which you're the president in Arizona, you had a teach-in and you had a doctor on who has been sued by the estate of a fetus that was um, terminated at eight weeks. I believe it was eight weeks. And she and the mother have been sued by the uh, putative father, maybe the, the real father, but not... No, the mother's not sued, just the doctor. Just, just the doctor. Uh, I mean, those are what we're seeing as a result of the leaked Dobbs decision and the potential end of Roe. So uh, this case is is very unusual. It predates, the suit was filed in October of 2020, and it predates certainly the Dobbs. But what it does do is reinforce this notion of personhood because that's what so many states are going for. So if you can open an intestate estate for an eight-week gestational embryo that was terminated, then it, again, like the states that are charging women for their prenatal conduct based on um, child endangerment laws, it is the cumulative body of jurisprudence, if you will, that attempts to establish the personhood of the fetus. And that's what they're going for. There is very little doubt. There, I have an old film clip um, in, in my film from um, the, a year after the Roe decision where they had the first March for Life and quote unquote. And um, there's a speaker saying that we will not stop until we get a constitutional amendment mm-hmm protecting the unborn. And there is very little doubt that if the GOP takes control of the House and the Senate in November, that they will push for a constitutional amendment on personhood. And given the number of states that are anti-abortion, and have abortion bans, it's very possible to get that ratified. So we're looking at a very frightening scenario here, unless, I have to, I have to get on my soapbox, unless everybody takes the battle to the ballot box. Based on the language in the draft Dobbs decision, my biggest fear is not just the loss of reproductive health care, but the loss of other rights. And I'm wondering if you share that fear 
And if so, what other areas besides reproductive rights do you think Dobbs, if it stays as written, um, will affect? If there's no constitutional right to privacy, then the dominoes will fall. There's little doubt that, you know, uh, Griswold, which gave the right to contraception, that um, the right to LGBT, to gay marriage, perhaps even Loving versus Virginia with interracial marriage. These are all contingent on 14th Amendment rights to privacy. But it's important to note that abortion in and of itself, abortion bans are not the goal here. It is an attempt, that is the vehicle, to turn this country into an autocratic theocracy, to go back to the founding fathers, and I don't mean the constitutionalists, I mean even, you know, the John Winthrops of the world who wanted the Puritan mentality of having a state based on religion. So it's very interesting to look at this in the larger context, which I think is essential and should send people everywhere to the polls to vote. This is an intersectional alliance between abortion abolitionists, the extremists, and we should note that today is the 39th, is the anniversary of the death, uh, the murder of Dr. Tiller in Nebraska, mm. who was gunned down while he was in church services because his clinic performed later-term abortions. But it is the abortion abolitionists combined with the Christian militia and the white supremacists who are all moving toward creating a white nationalist country. And this cannot be taken lightly. I mean, if you look at where the CPAC convention was this year in Hungary and how so many of these people, you know, admire the dictators around the world, that is the goal. It's very interesting because I had a conversation with um, a gentleman named Frank Schaefer, whose father, Frank is a repentant evangelical, and uh, his father was one of the leaders of the moral majority movement in the late 60s. And one has to look at the origins. They seized on anti-abortionism as the vehicle for joining the Republican Party and increase, you know, building the big tent and bringing mm -hmm. in the money. And it's a very interesting sidebar here. The Southern Baptist Conference, of course, supported Jimmy Carter. He was one of them. And the fact that he was pro-reproductive rights didn't really concern them. The evangelical movement in the early yeah. 70s and the 60s was not against abortion. What they did find onerous about Jimmy Carter is that he threatened to withhold federal funds from schools, even religious schools, that did not integrate. So because they were opposed to his view on integration, they banded together in opposition of Carter and in opposition of the Democratic Party. Now, they could not very well make their platform racism, so they were looking for a handle to do it. And they seized on 
abortion as their battle cry and as their, you know, galvanizing point. And it worked. And it worked in 1979 when Reagan was campaigning for the 80 election. Reagan, who had been as governor of California, had legalized abortion, had signed it into law. Suddenly in 1979, he saw the light and he was opposed to abortion. And it was because the Republican Party wanted to bring in all the evangelicals into a big tent and the money that came with that. So it's also interesting, people should know that the Republican Party itself, in 1972, the chair of the Republican Party support of, of the Republican Party supported access to reproductive rights and abortion. Even Donald Trump supported that until he didn't. Um, I, I also want to just mention and honor Sarah Weddington, who, when you mentioned Carter, she was one of the top aides to Carter, and she is the person who argued Roe versus Wade. And um, I, I think we should all remember her fondly as someone who stood up for those rights. And I think the things you're pointing out is how many of our rights are now in danger. And it's not just our right to privacy. It's many rights, including our religious freedom rights, and uh, which raises another issue, which is that although the basis for the arguments in Dobbs did not raise the religious argument, there have been some discussion about using that as an argument. And I'd like to hear what you think in terms of whether the religious argument could be a successful one, that it denies people who are not Christian the right to practice their religion and to be free of the implications or the imposition of government-imposed religion by restricting them to the laws of the Catholic Church. Well, and and now, of course, the evangelical, the the Baptist. Um, Until the personhood concept is codified into law, which it is in some states already. It's codified into state constitutions in Alabama and elsewhere, uh, Oklahoma, many other states. Until that becomes the grounds for a challenge, then one is left with undue burden. Now, undue burden has been eliminated. That's why there have been no religious challenges thus far, because undue burden certainly seemed to cover the gamut of restrictions. If personhood goes into effect, and if it certainly becomes any kind of federal law, Mm -hmm. then there may be grounds for religious challenges because a lot of religions do not recognize the personhood of a fertilized egg, embryo, or fetus. Judaism certainly does not. What makes the argument a bit difficult is it it interferes with your interferes with your religious expression and the freedom of that expression but it does not interfere with your practice of religion your day-to-day practice so it's something that has to be sorted out and when the personhood laws go into effect that may raise 
you know, will open a different argument and a different arena. How should Congress and state legislatures respond to this issue? Well, it depends <laughs> who's in control of Congress, <laughs> yes. who's in control of the state legislatures. I mean, the goal is, of course, to turn the tide. The mm-hmm. goal in states, the goal is to, to oust the Republican legislatures that are passing these bans. The goal is to maintain the majority and even a wider majority, of course, in the Senate, but in, in the House. I think that's yeah, also another reminder of um, why everyone needs to vote down ballot too. And focusing specifically on state legislatures, how much of an issue or how much of a contr- uh, power do they have in uh, creating legislation uh, in order to codify Roe um, around the country? They have the absolute power to do it in their state. I mean, they states codified it, legalized it before Roe, as we talked about, California, New York, and a few other East Coast states. And, of course, states across the country have outlawed it. Mm-hmm. So they have the power to reverse what has been on the books. Mm-hmm. And can you talk about what um, men should do and what role we have in this fight? You have every role in this fight. I mean, let's, you know, I'm so tired of hearing the word choice, as I said, which is now a misnomer. But I am aghast that is looked at as a women's rights issue. Who is the responsible party here? Who is the sperm provider? And what people don't recognize is that now the paternity obligations of somebody who impregnates um, even a minor, you know, a minor, a teenage or 16-year-old boy who impregnates his girlfriend, his family and her family will be responsible for child support. He then will have to pay once he's 21 and older. County attorneys have absolute discretion when it comes to so many issues, including, by the way, if you talk about voting, let's not forget the AG offices and the county Mm -hmm. attorney offices, because they are the ones who have the discretion about upholding these bans or prosecuting and following through on the criminal provisions of these bans. They don't have to. So when you're voting, Don't just vote for the senators. Go down ballot all the way down and look at the judicial candidates as well. But the states have absolute authority. So what Roe did was, of course, enjoin laws that were previously on the books in the states. Now, with the Dobbs decision, there's a lot of question about whether those previous bans will once again become, not, no pun intended, viable laws. They don't automatically in all states, but there are states that have trigger laws on the books where the old bans automatically go into effect. There are other states where it will take a special action on the part of an attorney general, a county attorney, or an interested party to file suit to reopen and lift the, you know, injunction on the pre-Roe bans. But there's little doubt that 
this is going to open the floodgates. And we already have it illegal in the majority of states. And the other thing to note, back to previous question that you raised about medication abortion, let's not forget that more than half the states have bans or restrictions on medication abortion. So if you preclude providers from performing procedures, you're also precluding providers from, provi- from giving access to medication mm. or assisting or counseling on medication because counseling goes into this. And it's a tragic situation. I'd like to also talk about this point Jill made earlier that medical students are not being trained in the procedure. So for many reasons, one of which is that state medical schools because of state funding bans on that, or state medical schools that also get federal funds, it's a problem and they don't teach it. So what happens if you are an ER doctor and you have a pregnant person brought in from a collision, an auto collision, and the only way to, to save that person's life is to terminate the pregnancy. Many wouldn't know how, particularly in rural communities. They have not been trained where there is such a shortage of doctor physicians anyway. It's not like you get on the call and call another doctor who may know. There is no other doctor. So we're talking about a major reproductive health pandemic in the making here. And people don't realize it. You know, they're now suddenly coming awake. People have said to me when we did this film, you you kept shouting the house is burning. Well, now that the house is burned to the ground, people are starting to respond, but they're not responding in the right context. They're not responding for the overall issue that the health and lives of pregnant people are what are on the line here. Even those, as we said, with much wanted pregnancies. So for young people, how should young people take the reproductive rights movement from here? I'm wondering, Jill and I have spent some time thinking about who the next big reproductive rights activist is, um, young reproductive rights activist is. Um, Can you think of any, and I guess where should my generation take this fight from here? To the polls, to your ballot, Mm -hmm. to the voting, mobilize the vote, hook up with all of the organizations out there that are mobilizing the vote for candidates that support access to reproductive health care. I mean, there's, you know, no more rallying, no more, you know, marching, no more activism. It's too late for that. Mm -hmm. And there is no one single activist that has emerged. What has emerged um, is a very as a coalition of various groups out there, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's um, BPOC women or Black Lives Matter, uh, doula organizations, certainly the old stalwarts of feminist majority, fight for her. But groups like NextGen that are getting out the vote, all of the groups that are mobilizing election 
campaigning. That's what has to be done. We have to get every young person who's a senior in high school who may be 18 by November 3rd to register to vote. You have to tell your your younger siblings. You have to tell your grandchildren, nieces, nephews, everybody you know, the kid next door. The parents of the kids you babysit for. You know, this this is the fight for democracy. This is not the fight for abortion alone. This is the fight for democracy because there is a correlation between the shootings and the, you know, uh, white replacement theory and what happened, you know, in uh, around the country here. This is a bigger agenda, and this is about freedom to maintain a democracy. We see what's happening with uh, the critical race theory, which is such a misnomer, but the ban on books, the ban on what teachers can say. Here in Arizona, right now, the state legislature is in budget talks and a bill that did not make it through committees that would ban the teaching of history in a full um, objective way about the full context of, of historical events is now uh, this bill is now coming up again as a striker bill as part of the horse trading with budget talks. This bill imposes a $5,000 fine on teachers. So, you know, how do you teach the Civil War without teaching about slavery? How do you teach about World War II without talking about Nazism and, and all that it entailed? But this is what's happening across the country. You see that. In the 50s, these books weren't banned. Now they're being banned. So it is not just about abortion. I mean, I would implore even young people who have been raised to believe in, you know, the soldom of a fertilized egg, to think about their own lives for a moment. They're college students. They want an intellectual education. They want a perspective. They want a full awareness of history, of literature, Politics, they won't get it if this movement continues to thwart democratic freedoms. And I would say to add to the importance of voting and to being motivated by the draft Dobbs decision that do it before it's too late. Do it now. You young people may not realize fully what the implications are because you've just assumed you always had these rights. But as we've discussed on this episode, it's not just the loss of the right to terminate a pregnancy. It's also the potential loss of same-sex marriage and of many other rights that are indicated from the draft of this decision. So go out and vote now to make sure that it doesn't get any worse. And in terms of, of voting and being motivated, Sylvia, let me just ask you, one of the things that you've mentioned is how we phrase things, the terminology, the messaging. And I have a um, hashtag on Twitter called Say This, Not That. And I've been encouraging people to, for example, say reproductive health care, 
not choice, not abortion, because that's what it is, and also because it is a much more uh, compelling argument to people in the middle of the road. But what are some of the messaging uh, lessons that you've learned in your fight here, and what would you recommend be the message that Democrats send out to get not just young voters, but to motivate all voters to vote all the way down the ballot? I would certainly stress that it's access to health care, reproductive health care, but the full spectrum of reproductive health care, and that includes contraception. It includes, let's not forget here, that this movement has also banned sex education so that there's a generation of young people who don't even know how their bodies operate. I remember talking to a professor of women's studies, University of uh, Oregon, years ago, as I was researching the film, and she said in her medical, in her physiology class, there were people coming in, who young women, who had no idea what their body parts were. They did not know the difference between their urethra, their vagina, their birth, birth mm. canal, because they were never taught this. Mothers, for whether it's because of their religious background or because they're just holding down jobs and parenting and juggling too much, have not really been inclined to sit down and give the birds and bees discussion to their kids. Schools in so many districts are barred from teaching sex education, even just as part as rudimentary sex education as part of health classes. That affects your generation. So it's not just abortion, which certainly should be destigmatized because it's not an evil word, but the issue is far broader than abortion. It's about your health, access to your health care. Understanding STDs is part of that education. Understanding um, the potential for acquiring all kinds of communicable diseases is part of that education. And again, the messaging has to be that it is about now an agenda aimed at destroying the democratic freedoms that we have always thought were so sacrosanct. So it's beyond contraception, it's beyond gay marriage, it's beyond interracial. As I said before, it's about intellectual freedom, classroom discussion, political debate. It's about everything. The freedom to practice religion, absolutely, because this is an attempt to install an autocratic theocracy that only recognizes one religious point of view. So there is everything at stake. If you are a young person on campus right now or graduating high school, you do not want your intellectual and emotional, physiological life to be restricted by extremists who only look for the chance to restore a very puritanical kind of country. Of course, it's hypocritical because their morality is not consistent with that, but there is one goal, 
And that goal absolutely is to create a white nationalist state. So it is racism and every person of color needs to understand that. It is all part of the spectrum. It's not coincidental that voting rights are being restricted. It's all part of the package of limiting your voice and what in the freedoms that you have and the way you would express your desire to maintain those freedoms. It's so intersectional. This is not about abortion. And that's how we have to frame it. Well, that's a very good message to end on. And we are very grateful to you for spending this time with us. And more importantly, for having made the film Birthright a War Story, which really is a dramatic presentation of issues that you foresaw when no one else was seeing them. And now that they're seeing them, I hope it's not too late to undo the damage and to vote out the people who will deprive us of our rights. So thank you very much, Sylvia Tamarkin, for being with us. And we look forward to more discussions with you as the decision comes out and as the consequences became, become clear to all generations. Thank you for having me, and thank you for this very, very important discussion. Thank you, Sylvia. Thank you so much for watching or listening to this episode of iGen Politics with Sylvia Tamarkin. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did, and that you'll come back next week for another great episode of iGen Politics. You can follow us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to us on YouTube uh, under the Politicon channel. Uh, be sure to like this video and comment and click the bell for our weekly notifications every Wednesday. Thank you so much again, and we hope to see you next week for another episode of iGen Politics.